according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes to the Scriptures. We are in uh, Proverbs chapter 12 this morning. And I'm not seeing my Proverbs notes up here. That's all right. We'll follow the slideshow and hunt down. I'll dust the pulpit for fingerprints and find out who stole my Proverbs notes. All right. Proverbs chapter 12. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside our distractions and to humble us under His authority. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. And Father, uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, so we, uh, we want to get back into the swing of things. And, and uh, we're calling upon your faithfulness, Father, that as the Word of God goes forth, that you would faithfully minister to your children and not allow the teaching of your Word to be damaged or, or uh, limited in any way because of uh, human weaknesses of the people involved, especially the teacher. Father, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, sorry we had to cancel last week and, and that, but it is what it is. All right, let me advance our slides to where we left off. See all the slides, and we're looking at the know-it-all. I think we wrapped up everything related to the righteous. We dealt with verses 12 through 14 talked about the difference between trapping and seizing as opposed to putting down roots where we yield a supply. talked about roots and fruits. Had some fun with that. The whole point being productivity. The whole point being uh, not just plundering something but actually cultivating something that itself becomes productive. A vine when you're cultivating it becomes productive and then, and then the harvest is repeated again and again and again and now you have an abundance and now you can share and you can be the the grace provision towards others as opposed to just simply grabbing a net and, and grabbing somebody else's booty somebody else's plunder which is what verse 12 speaks to the wicked man desires the booty of evil man and uh, so you're you're just swiping what somebody else has and then you're living in fear that somebody stronger than you is going to come along and swipe what you've got and uh, and uh, the terrible approach there as opposed to putting down roots and yielding uh, the fruit and the blessings there. The return to the hand is interesting too in verse 14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. And so we have a twin, we have a tandem there of, of a satisfaction that comes through the, uh, the return. And so uh, we can appreciate that as well I think. Anyway, dealt with all this. For the righteous words and deeds are satisfactory and accumulative. The principles of satisfaction and return. Remember God Himself is satisfied in all that He does. His word will not return void but it accomplishes the purpose for which He said it. And uh, the applications there, Isaiah 53 11 and Isaiah 55 11. Alright, so let's talk about the know-it-all. And uh, won't spend a ton of time on this. We've dealt with it previously. But uh, the know-it-all here in verses 15 and 16, um, when we're looking at uh, these two verses, let's just read them and then we'll break down the A, A and B parallelism in both. 
Uh, so Proverbs twelve fifteen: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. And so these are the two verses that come together. The structure of the poetry links these two verses together with an A part, a B part in each one. And we can look to the A part of verse 15, the A part of verse 16, and we can see they both deal with the fool there. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And you can't convince him otherwise. He's convinced. He's doing what he wants to do and he's okay with it. <laughs> and and uh, anyone that comes along and points out the problem or points out something wrong with what he's doing and uh, how dare you? Because he knows what he's doing and it's right in his eyes so go away, leave me alone. Uh, very much compatible with our generation in, uh, in a lot of things. And then, of course, when it does blow up he gets all mad about it. <laughs> okay? In verse 16a, a fool's anger is known at once. And, and when you talk about the, the short temper, when you talk about how it becomes self-evident uh, in, uh, in these things, there you have it. And, uh, and, and sometimes I wonder, are you more mad at, at, at the thing not working right or are you mad that you should have listened to the council and, and you didn't, <laughs> you know? And now you're doubly mad because now the man that told you what you should have done is not going to be able to tell you, I told you so. And that just, that just angers things even more. So we have, uh, <laughs> we have some fun stuff to talk about there. Anyway, um, it comes back again as a concept over and over and over again. You know, everybody does need counsel, and it is a wise man in the, in the B part here. A wise man is he who listens to counsel. You know, to not even listen. I mean, how, how arrogant is that? To, to not even listen. To just say, hey, I've heard it all, or I know what I'm doing, don't bother. You know, I mean, what, what does it hurt to listen to what the person has to say? If he cares about you, if he, if he is coming to you in love and wants to communicate the truth, then, uh, then there you go. Uh, so a wise man is he who listens to counsel and he uh, keeps his mouth shut. You know, a prudent man conceals dishonor. Uh, he might be angry, just like the fool, but he's not going to blast it out there to, to, for everyone to see, you know. Deal with it. Deal with your anger as, as unto the Lord and, and give it to the Lord and watch, uh, watch what the Lord chooses to do with it. So uh, anyway, it's a good uh, simple truth. I don't know that I mean practically preaches itself. I don't know. We'll spend a lot of time on it. But uh, look at chapter 14 and we'll see some of these other texts and see how they expand upon it. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 14 verse 12 and verse 16 concept comes back again in chapter 16, chapter 21, chapter 26. Just over and over again it, uh, it comes through. So Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, so what do you think now? You know, all the best laid plans of, of mice and men, and, and here's where they go. But at the time, seemed like a good idea at the time, they didn't ask for counsel. They weren't seeking the Lord's will. Remember, in all your ways acknowledge Him, He will make your path straight. Uh, but no, this is just doing what seems right in your own eyes. And, and, and a person can do this, and, and where does it take them? A nation can do this, and where does it take them? Okay? And this is, uh, it's, uh, you know, on, on an applicable basis here for, for uh, politics, <laughs> when uh, you deal in a culture that just wants to do what the majority wants to do, well, what if the majority is carnal? What if the majority is serving Satan? What, you know, 
um, a majority of spies wanted to go back to Egypt and only two that were obedient to the plan of God and said, no, this is, this is what the Lord has for us. So I think a lot of these passages speak more than just the personal, remember this is personal and public wisdom that we're dealing with here in these sections. So that's verse 12. Uh, same chapter, verse uh, 14, the backslider, verse 14, no, verse 16. Uh, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. See, because he knows what he's going to do. Don't tell him otherwise. And, uh, well, there you have it. Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Again, these foolish know-it-alls. Not only do they think it's right, not only do they think it's smart, they think it's pure. They think there's nothing wrong with it. And um, as it says in Proverbs 16 too, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Partly why um, sometimes it's not so good to just simply operate on a conscience basis is that we get good at lying to ourselves. And we get good at convincing ourselves that up is down and right is wrong and good is, you know, and, and all the, way, the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. No, I'm okay with it. And we can convince ourselves that it's clean until uh, we stop and we search the scriptures or we stop and we, in prayer, ask God to search our hearts, right? And uh, we, we, we uh, voice the prayer that David said. He said, search me, O God, try me. Search within my heart. See if there be within me any wicked thing. And, and when we honestly do that, when we honestly take that step and say, bring to my attention what it is I'm not seeing here. Father, uh, I think I'm in fellowship, but it just it seems like there's a barrier between you and me. It just seems like my prayer life isn't what it should be. It, I just have this nagging sense that there's something I'm not... What is it? I'm not hungry for the Word. What, what is, it? is it? I don't think I'm carnal. I don't... And so take it in prayer and say, Father, I just, am I carnal? I don't remember it. Oh, <laughs> okay, that's it. All right, thank you, Lord. And, and more often, I can't tell you, dozens of times, hundreds of times even over the decades that I've done this, when you're asking him, show me, Father, show me. Is there carnality? Is there, is there an obstacle between me and you? Is there, oh, that's what it is, okay. All right, and he'll bring that to remembrance. Ask him and he will show you part of the ask, knock, and seek mandate that we have. So, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Don't ever be content with your being content. Okay? You know, the little kid, did you wash your hands for dinner? Yes, I washed my hands for dinner. And then mom checks the hands. Oh, no you didn't. (laughs) Yes, I did. Well, not, not good enough. Go back and do it again. Okay? Because we think it's good enough. And yet our hands are still filthy. So uh, the Lord weighs the motives. Um, same chapter, down to the end of the chapter, or further down, verse 25, repeated from chapter 12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And how can something so deadly look okay? How can something, I mean, the end thereof is, the, is, is death, why does it seem okay right now? It seems right to me. Because I think a lot of this, not only is it a, a fool versus wisdom contrast, not only is it carnality versus spirituality, I think a lot of it is just simply um, mortality, working, living in the moment, living in the here and now, and not thinking about the consequences. Sure, there's consequences, but I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about a possible pregnancy. I don't want to think about 
a possible disease. I don't want to think about, you know, I'm just, that's, that's, that's down the road. That's consequences. Who cares about consequences? There's, there's fun right here, right now. And there's the moment. And we want to live in the moment. That is, fallen man wants to live in the moment. Carnality wants to live in the moment. And so regardless of, of what the outcome is, the end is the way of death, but seems okay. It's the way that seems right to a man. Uh, Proverbs 21. And uh, we've got verse 2. Verse 1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so that can be both a blessing or a curse. Water can be the greatest provision and it isn't necessary, but can also be destructive. Verse 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. And then it goes on to say, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. You know, this, this was a hallmark of Jesus' teaching, and he was talking to the Pharisees about this very issue and uh, related to the, the uh, obedience to the Lord as opposed to legalism and just um, maintaining a, uh, a liturgical purity. Over to Proverbs 26. Verse 12 and verse 16. Verse 12 says, okay, it's not connected to verse 11, I don't think grammatically, it's just, I like it. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And yet they do it, don't they? Every time? Why? Why do they do that? Explain that to me. Um, Verse 12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. (laughs) That's the thing. Um, If if they're a know-it-all, then what can you tell them? What can you possibly tell them? Okay? That's why you've got to be humble under the authority of the Word of God. And, uh, well, there it is. Verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. And uh, to contrast one verse of seven, well, they're all a bunch of fools. And the one just insists that he knows what he's doing. And never mind what, those, what that guy says. Never mind what those seven guys say. You know, how, how, how uh, foolish are you now that you're going to ignore seven different people and they're all coming to you with God's wisdom, they're all giving you the discreet answer and uh, oh, <laughs> I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So, anyway, there we have it. Back to chapter 12. Take a look at our next section. Verses... Uh, 17 and following, I think is where we're headed next. Point 10. Now, now we're getting into a section. 17 through 22. This is a lengthy section. This, uh, this is connected together in some interesting ways. The, the, the connections uh, are, are, um, are, are, are interesting and in particular centered on aspects of truth, aspects of speaking, the tongue we're going to see repeated over and over again. Different things here. So let's uh, read it straight through. But we're talking about um, the contrast of truth versus lie. The, the aspect of God versus Satan. The, the, the conflict that we have. Personal and public life shaped by God's wisdom will be characterized by truth. And we're serving the God of truth. And we're going to live in truth. Not just the truth of the Word of God, 
But truth in all that we do, truth in secular life, truth in business dealings, truth in everything. We're going we're gonna to stand for truth because we serve the God of truth. As opposed to personal and public life shaped by the world's wisdom. Remember there's that alternative wisdom that's out there. Personal and public life shaped by the world's wisdom will be characterized by lies. They are descendants of, of Satan. They are the brood of vipers. Uh, he was a liar from the beginning. And, uh, and so they want to do the things that are pleasing to, to him. And um, that's John 8, 44 in the, in the, the great rebuke there, uh, you are of your father the devil. So uh, let's look at 17 through 22 and then we'll come back and start getting some details. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. All right, so there's our unit, 17 through 22, that all come together. Most of them, almost everyone there except 21, uses uh, either truth or lie or lips or something related to that. And 21, I think, does also. It just may not be as apparent as, uh, as the others. And so here it is. Ask yourself, is, is, what, is my life characterized by, by truth or is my life characterized by, by the lie? Uh, am I fast and loose with the facts or am I Am I representative of, of Jesus Christ who is faithful and true? That's, that's what I'm called to do. And it's, it's, it's a lot larger concept, I think, than we often um, give it credit for. I think uh, we're, we grow up, we're trained as children, of course we're told not to tell lies, and we're told to always speak the truth, and then if you get caught then the punishment is worse than had you spoken the truth in the first place. Boy, I learned that. Uh, you know, you want to be grounded for one week or grounded for two weeks because uh, you know, if you lie about it, then you're going to get grounded for two weeks because you get the one week for what you did, and then you get a second week for lying about what you did. And, uh, and so I learned very quickly. Um, well, no, I didn't learn very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> if you add up my total time from age two to age eighteen, how, you know how much was grounded and how much was not grounded, and it was, yeah, I don't know, on average, I was grounded a lot. But, um, but like I say, it was always double. Always doubled if you, if you wouldn't confess, if you wouldn't add up, if you, if you try to shift the blame or you try to dodge the responsibility. So, uh, so there is that, okay? But so much bigger than that because it, it goes to the very essence of who God is. And it goes to the very essence of who we are in Christ. And, and we are. He is the God of truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We are children of truth, Okay? And we are, we are rejecting that adversary. We're rejecting the, the, the liar. And, and the, the worst thing about it is because it's so easy and it's so insidious. And we convince ourselves that, that uh, well, it's just a little white lie. Or, well, it's not so bad. Or, well, you know, I just don't want to hurt their feelings. Okay? Or, or, or whatever. Okay? And there's no excuse for any of that. But Satan convinces us that it's, it's okay. Or it's good. All right? And so, uh, in some respects, we then we find that our very language has been corrupted. We find that we have that our culture, our, our, our very 
you know, and we 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 fall into it. We've we've used we use euphemisms that kind of hide the reality of, of what things are. And well, why do we do that? Why don't we just use the real term? So, um, I, I think there's there's larger issues at play here. All right. First of all, we know. I think I missed a point. No, maybe not. All right, so taking verse 17 as a heading, and then my first subpoint comes in verse 18. I thought I had a subpoint for verse 17 as well, but I don't see it. All right, so uh, there is one who speaks rashly like thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And so remember, words, we've already taught this from chapter 12, uh, or from chapter 10 really. Our words have power to hurt, our words have power to heal. This is why it's a bigger issue than just telling the truth versus telling a lie. Okay? Take a moment. Thank you. Oh. I appreciate it. All right. Um, that, so this is, uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is how hurtful these things can be. All right? Because words have the power to heal, words have the power to, to hurt, and lies are a part of that. Think about how much damage you do with a lie. Um, maybe not at the time you tell it, but what about when the lie gets exposed? What about when the truth finally does come out and now you're dealing with the damage that the lie caused, okay? which is totally unnecessary in, uh, related to that. Now it's my turn. Now it's my turn to make a noise. My apologies. All right. So um, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this because we developed it at great length in the chapter 10 notes. So if you have your chapter 10 notes, you can pull those up and take a look at it. I uh, thought I might even put a little clicky link in here and be able to, you can launch a previous slideshow from, uh, from this slideshow and bring up some of those slides. But um, we can look at the verses here this morning and see what they're talking about. Proverbs 10, 6 through 11. Do you remember though when there was a difference between a crown on the head and the swords in the mouth? And the difference because you can conceal violence with your mouth uh, and you can say one thing and then come right out and, and actually do great damage. We spent a fair amount of time on this as I recall. Um, remember Proverbs 10, 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so remember, you know, think of the things that you wear on your head, like a crown, and everyone can see it because it's sitting there on the top of your head. <laughs> okay? So nothing hidden there. If, uh, you know, if you're talking, if you're face-to-face -face with somebody and you're talking to him and he's got something on his head, uh, you know, you're going to see it. That's, that's what it is. But the mouth um, can conceal violence and uh, the, the damage that can be done there. Um, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Um, yeah, we had a lot of notes in this. and In fact, more than just this, ver uh, this chapter too, because there were other passages in Psalms that spoke about the swords, that spoke about the spears and the, the damage that comes out of the mouth. Um, Proverbs 10.9 he who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. Um, he who winks the eye causes trouble. What's wrong with winking? Well, 
because you're giving a signal is what you're doing. You're saying one thing, but then you're, you're winking to your buddy here who's going to validate your, your, uh, your lie. And now you're in a conspiracy to deceive between you and somebody else. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And that's there. So now I feel bad I didn't put that little clicky thing I was going to put in there to open up the chapter, uh, the chapter 10 outline, because there were some other additional points there. I think Psalm 37 was one of them. Um, Psalm 37. And it's uh, useful to remind ourselves of this from time to time. Um, is it Psalm 37 I'm thinking of? Yeah. Down late in this, yeah. Verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. There's some other passages too. I'm, I'm not thinking of them at the moment that have the, the, the spears and the swords and Verse 14 maybe is what it is. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow and cast down the afflicted to the needy. All right. Well, my apologies. I'll put that clicker thing in there for next week and we'll be able to look at those chapter 10 notes. Or if you have them at home, pull up your chapter 10 notes and, and look at those. Because think about the, 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 the damage that's done. There's a reason why it's swords and spears that are spoken of and that are coming from your mouth. There's a reason why... Um, when you consider the fact that how painful words can be and how things that were said 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago can still hurt you today and related, to, uh, related to that. And uh, yeah. All right, well. I thought I had more, but I guess I don't. Let's talk about truth versus laws. Let me go back to chapter 12 then. It's a a contrast of the abomination versus the delight. The contrast, uh, when you see in verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. And once again, we have a principle here that we've already studied at great length. Uh, Back in chapter 11, we gave you notes on abominations and notes on delights and the imagery involved in either pushing something away or embracing something close. And if it's an abomination, you want to push it far from you, you want nothing to do with it. You don't want it uh, you know, within arm's reach at all. And um, truth versus lies, this is the contrast here. And, and I think this is also useful for us in, um, in um, trying to answer some of the folks that think we're so judgmental and we're so uh, legalistic about particular sins. Because to the Lord, sin is sin, but the ones that He calls abominations seem to be highlighted particularly in the text. Well, why is that? And that's not always just what we think of as the, as the, the biggies or the real ugly sins and so forth. You know, we're not going to be legalists about it or, or up on a high horse and, and preaching against uh, uh, because uh, the Bible uses the abomination language to condemn homosexuals, for example. Well, here we have an abomination passage that's, that's uh, condemning liars. So how do you like that? All right, let's put those things together. Let's, let's recognize what these things are. Uh, that anything that is an attack on God's very nature Himself, either as the God of truth, the God of life, or how He designed it, if you're going to live in defiance of that, God views that as an abomination. And so lying uses the same terminology. And, and to me it's, uh, 
I just find it as a as a neat aspect on uh, on this. All right. So uh, we have uh, notes from Proverbs chapter eleven, and here too. I really I was supposed to put a clicker there. Well. In Proverbs chapter 11. Let me see if I can get there a different way. Please stand by. Otherwise, it's going to be there. Here we go, chapter 12, chapter 11, all those Jeremiah notes. Ha, here we go. Chapter 11 notes. Tontneva and Ratzon, abomination and favor. Okay, so we'll just put it right here. My apologies, I meant to have that clicker thing installed and that would have made this a lot easier. That's not it. Oh, here it is. Okay, so here's our terms. Tokneva and Ratzon. And this is the contrast that we have in chapter 12. And so this was the slide we looked at back in chapter 11 as we deal with abominations or favor. The Tokneva abomination, Strong's number 8441. All right? This speaks to a revulsion. Okay? It is a, it is a, it's, it's, it's visceral. It's something that, 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 that comes up uh, in, um, uh, visceral may be the best word. It's something that's a revulsion, a disgust. And so you have an impulse to push away. That's the imagery here. And God says He Himself experiences this. God Himself is a God of, of passions. He's a God of emotion. He's a God of, of, uh, of, of um, well, I guess emotion is the best way to say it. So he has, he has an impulse to push away. He finds something distasteful. See? And it's not just us. We're, we're in His image and much of what we experience in our mentality, in our emotions, in our sensibility, in our taste, the fact that we can discriminate on these aspects is a reflection that God also discriminates on, on these aspects. All right, And so he, he experiences a revulsion. He experiences, it's like stimulus and reaction. He, he observes something and it, it, uh, He responds. He reacts on the, on the basis of who he is and what he is, all right? And Scripture could not be more clear. And yet, people will argue. There's swaths of theology out there that, that want to dispute this. Because uh, the idea that God would respond to a stimulus, they, um, they don't like that. They, 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 feel, they feel that it approaches, uh, uh, that it changes God. That uh, he's not immutable at that point. 
that if, if God truly experienced uh, anger, or if He truly experienced revulsion, or if He truly experienced pleasure, if there's anything we can do that would stimulate God, that being stimulated means being changed. And I think that's just a, a flaw in their definition. That, uh, that just because, I mean, yeah, we can be changed through extensive stimulation, but it, I think there's a difference between being affected and being changed. He's still eternally the I am, even if he's disgusted by what he sees. And God, God uses that language for a reason. He wants us to understand what it means. So abomination is a revulsion, a compelling impulse to drive something far from one's presence. And when the Bible says I, that God cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly, it means he cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. There are things God cannot do. And um, it doesn't d- deny sovereignty, and it doesn't deny omnipotence, and it doesn't deny immutability or any of these other things. He cannot do it by virtue of the fact that he is sovereign and omnipotent and immutable and, and perfect in, in, in all respects. So, of course, he's going to have a revulsion. And so uh, the Tokmabah language, yes, it's used repeatedly in Leviticus 18. And yes, it's used extensively for all of the, the varieties of fornication in that chapter. All right, And yes, it does highlight homosexuality uh, as distinct from other fornication sins. Okay, um, Fornication is fornication, but not all fornication is unnatural. Homosexuality is unnatural, and that compounds the the guilt on the on the sin. Um, likewise, Proverbs three, Proverbs six, Proverbs eight, uh, all of these aspects. Fourteen more times it comes up in our section now in the parental and personal and public wisdom portion of Proverbs. Fourteen more times, Tolneva comes up in uh, in the public life, and in in this section, more often than not, it's not sexual. Here, it's lying, lying versus truth in chapter twelve. And lying versus truth is, is a reflection of the, of the abomination versus the revulsion. Likewise, the favor is the ratzon. It is a delight. It is a favorable, acceptable thing. It is, um, not, not, it's, it's favor, but not favor like grace. It's favor like um, pleasant. It's favor is like something that you find favorable. It's a favorable odor. It's a favorable taste. It's a favorable appearance or whatever the case may be it is it is pleasing to the senses and so it finds favor i like how it smells i like how it tastes i like how it feels i like how it looks and uh, and that comes back to again we are sensible beings uh things that smell great or smell horrible and so the idea of, of a delight is a favorable acceptable thing which impels someone to embrace it close or to embrace it closely and um most of the verses that we looked at there, a lot of the Levitical verses speak of the sacrifices that God finds favorable. The fact that the smoke goes up from the altar and it is, what's it called? It's called a sweet-smelling savor. It's called a favorable sacrifice. And so as it goes up, it's, it's, it's pleasing to the, to the nose. It's pleasing to the smell. And so he smells the, uh, the sacrifice. and It's a pleasant aroma. Um, some of the other uses in Psalms 19 and Psalm 40 and Psalm 69. Um, the uses there. Proverbs 8.35, remember that Jesus was a delight to his father. Jesus was uh, the begotten son 
and he was delighting in the Father. The Father was delighting in him. The Son created the world and, and he was delighting in the earth. Spent a lot of time in Proverbs 8 talking about that. Also Isaiah 61, 2, the favorable year of the Lord, the prophecy there, okay, related to uh, the coming kingdom and what Jesus will experience in the second advent. Thirteen times we'll have Ratzon in uh, this section of Proverbs from chapter 10 to chapter 19. So uh, stay tuned, we'll be seeing a whole lot more of it. All right, so that finishes that. And as long as I'm here, we could do the, uh, the other one as well. Am I done? Boy, you talk about rusty. Yeah, this is why I knew I wanted to put the clickers in there. All right. Um, Proverbs 10 notes on uh, violence. We'll let that go for now. Truth versus lies is a contrast of the abomination versus the delight. See the notes from Proverbs 11, verse 1 and verse 20, where the same contrast was applied to commercial transactions. Okay, Point C. Maybe the biggest reason why this is a big deal, preaching on these issues, not only for the, the practical basis in wisdom literature, but the fact is when we're talking about truth, we're talking about the, the nature of Jesus Christ himself who we are in Christ, and who we are as imitators of Christ. And so understand that Jesus Christ is faithful and true. And so the faithful and true witness will be blessed by the God of truth, and will have the, the world to come subjected to Him. It's not only a practical issue, but it's an eschatological issue. That's why eschatology is important. Jesus Christ is, a faithful, is faithful and true. Those, these are his titles. He, when he comes back and conquers, he's going to be wearing these as his titles. We'll see this in Revelation 3 and Revelation 19. Jesus Christ is faithful and true. This faithful and true witness. You and I are called to be faithful and true witnesses. Proverbs 12 calls us to be faithful and true witnesses. And there's blessings connected to that. It will be blessed by the God of truth. And this is what, what uh, we're preparing for, are we not? Are we not looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells? That's what this world is going to be subjected to. And the promises that are given, the, 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 the Isaiah promises that are given of the new heavens and the new earth are specifically looking for a coming faithful servant, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, my faithful servant who will testify in faithfulness and in truth. Because we've had all of these dispensations, we've had all of these ages, and we've had all of, of uh, the angelic conflict, and, and God has been looking for the one who is faithful and true, the one to whom he can entrust the world to come. So it's kind of neat that we hit it uh, at this time because this is, this is linking with, uh, with our Hebrew study, right? That he didn't subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking, but he subjected it to his son. He told his son, sit at my right hand. And uh, so the, we're dealing with concepts here that certainly struck the author of Hebrews in a powerful way in, uh, in that regard. All right.
Um, so that's why. So as we read through this, as we see in, in, in all of these verses here, um, can you go back a second time and reread these and instead of kind of plugging yourself in or plugging in a generic believer, what do these verses have to say about Jesus Christ? Do we have a Christological statement here that speaks to Jesus Christ and the fulfillment in uh, the new heavens and the new earth? Because Jesus Christ is He who speaks truth in verse 17 and tells what is right. That's Jesus Christ. Um, and then there's the adversary, the one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. But won't Jesus have a sword in His mouth when He comes back? Okay. Truthful lips will be established forever. When does Jesus, uh, when does His kingdom end? Never. It's established forever. That's right. The lying tongue is only for a moment. Satan is the liar from the beginning. He's not yet in the fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. But it's just a moment. Okay? This whole sweeping panorama of time compared to eternity. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But counselors of peace have joy. Again, view that verse, view it through a Christological lens and ask yourself, is this verse telling me something about Jesus Christ? And is it telling me about Him in the coming kingdom? Is there, is there something about the coming kingdom that speaks of Him as a wonderful counselor? Okay, there is. The Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father. And things that we're looking forward to Christologically in the new heavens and the new earth. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Couldn't be a greater contrast than that. New heavens and new earth for us, lake of fire for the, for the wicked. Lying lips are an abomination of the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight. Verse 22 again. We, we read through all this and, and view it through the lens of, of you and I, view it through the, through the lens of a believer that's living doctrine and, and walking according to wisdom, or we can come back now again and, and focus on the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is faithful and true. And we can see that He is going to be, He is the Father's delight because He's the one who deals faithfully. There's no one else that has dealt faithfully like God the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, in, uh, in, in all these things. Alright, are we familiar with Revelation 3.14 and 19.11? These are His titles. Revelation chapter 3. The seventh and final church. And uh, these are curious to me because, um, and, and we went, I taught the students this in Ukraine, we have a lengthy description of Jesus in chapter 1. When, when the Apostle John sees him. And that lengthy description then gets repeated in little snippets here and there to the seven churches, right? So there's a lengthy description of him in chapter 1 of what he looks like and what he's saying and, and all those things. And then uh, little snippets get repeated to these churches. So to Ephesus, it's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, okay? And it highlights that little that little snippet, that little portion of chapter 1. To, uh, to Smyrna, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. Another part that gets repeated from chapter 1 that has a little portion of it repeated to that church. To Pergamum, 
the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Okay? Something that we already knew about from chapter 1 gets repeated here. Um, and so we get this. We've got, we got Thyatira, we got Sardis, we got Philadelphia. And starting with Philadelphia, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one's opens. And all of a sudden we're going, wait, wait a minute, that's not a snippet from chapter 1. <laughs> we're building on something here. There's, there's a progression that's leading to a great, and, and I think a deep truth that's being presented here. And it starts with that uh, truth. He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. And he gives that great Philadelphia message. So that's Philadelphia. Then Laodicea. He's called the Amen. He's called the faithful and true witness. He's called the beginning of the creation of God who says this. All right? And uh, of all the introductions to all the seven churches, I think the Philadelphia one starts to take us into the deeper things of God, but the Laodicea one, man, it locks us there. It locks us into some of the some of the truth that goes back from Alpha to Omega, the beginning of the creation of God, the birth of the humanity of Christ. But he's called the Amen. He's called the Amen. That's his title. He is the faithful and true witness. And so since it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell here in Christ, and that's, that's, that's um, given this title as a definitive title, we understand that a text like Proverbs 12 about, hey, don't tell lies, is so much bigger than that. <laughs> okay? It, it, it is a fundamental contrast between the nature of God and the nature of, of Satan. The nature of Christ versus the Antichrist and the whole battle that's coming to its conclusion here uh, in the book of Revelation. So he is the faithful and true witness. Um, chapter 19 in verse 11 when he comes back to wage war. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Glenn Carnegie showed this to me years ago and said, see there's animals in heaven. Okay, well there's horses at least, I'll grant you that. And if they are zoological horses of the equine uh, family, that's impressive. Are they angels? In horse form? What are they? I don't know. Um, but I saw it, it is the only verse in Scripture that demonstrates animals in heaven. Um, anyway, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And uh, it goes on to describe what he does here. And his eyes is a flame of fire. And he's got the new name that the overcomer receives. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and white and clean. What's that? That's us. We're the ones dressed in fine linen and white and clean. We've already had our Bema seat. We've already had our uh, evaluation and our reward and our marriage supper and all of that. Okay? It's, it's, to me it's clear. How in the world could uh, um, you know the, the post-trib rapture view, I mean if, if you're going to try to conflate the rapture with the second advent, how in the world do we get raptured, caught up in the clouds and then drop right back down again without uh, going to the Bema or without receiving our white robes or without these other things. 
and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So the sword conquers, but the, the rod rules, and there's a big difference. And the ruling with a rod of iron happens because it's not a pleasant reign. It's not a cooperative reign. It is an occupation. It is a military conquest with a provisional government that happens as a result of the occupation. And throughout the thousand years, more and more Gentile nations are going to start to chafe and resist and resent and start to grumble against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's why he rules them with a rod of iron. All right. The faithful and true witness. He's going to be blessed by the God of truth. He's going to be granted the world to come. In fact, the millennium is his time to observe the present world and to, to finish the course of this present world, but then to ask the Father, ask of me, and I will give you the very ends of the earth as a possession. All right. Almost done. Isaiah 65. Let's go back to Isaiah 65. And uh, there's a hinge between verse 16 and verse 17. And it's like the first half of the chapter that leads to the next half of the chapter. And as we're uh, seeing uh, the conclusion of 1 through 16 here, without reading the whole thing, (laughs) um, yeah, verse 16, because he who is blessed in in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. So we have the whole course of human history leading up to the point where we can forget it all. Okay, Leading up to the point where we have new heavens, new earth and the former things are not brought to mind nor are they ever remembered again. Because behold I make all things new. And there is no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. The first things have passed away. And this is what the whole span of this is leading up to. The whole course of the plan of God is leading up to this. And um, the um, the judgment here I'll back up just a little bit but the um, verse 12 says I will destine you for the sword. All of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called and you did not answer. I spoke but you did not hear. You did evil in my sight. And chose that in which I did not delight. The tribulation is Israel's judgment for rebelling against God. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. And so there's a, con- there's a contrast in the tribulation. Whereas wrath is being poured out, but God's people are going to be preserved. They're going to be rescued. They're going to be provided for and so, um, as it goes back and forth, um, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and uh, the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. And so this is, this is what it all leads up to. Now when you get to this, 
Now you have the hinge, and what do we read about in verse 17? For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. <laughs> Isn't that great? And we're looking forward to that. That's why we're not afraid of tribulation, and we're not afraid of the, the millennial judgment, or all these other things, and what the Jews have to go through to, to receive their kingdom, and all of that. All right, we want to have the, the, the accurate eschatology so that uh, we're not struggling through these other issues. So I create new heavens and a new earth, and former things will not be remembered or come to mind. All right, then the rest of the chapter breaks out uh, what provides for that and the creating Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness and, and uh, what happens here in the millennial kingdom, starting with Jerusalem, starting with the Jewish people. You got a great description of the millennium taking you down through the end of uh, chapter 65. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. This is what we're looking forward to. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And uh, here's the description now. And this is a lot better than the Isaiah 65 description. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. He, this is when the, the full uh, significance of Emmanuel uh, stands upon this earth. He never took the name Emmanuel in first advent. He walked as Jesus for His first advent, the one that would save His people from their sins. But when He reigns, now He's Emmanuel. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Okay? Now in Isaiah 65 there's still death. In Isaiah 65 the youth dies at 100. Okay? We've got a picture of the millennium there before the new heavens and new earth. But here we see the new heavens and new earth and there's no more death, no more sin. The first things have passed away. We're not going to even remember them. Not going to remember them at all. And uh, he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Well, how about that? Okay, this, That's the topic of what we're dealing with, faithful and true. That's why uh, uh, he calls us in wisdom to, to walk in truth and, and not follow the father of lies. So he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Okay? I want to take the next 11 minutes and sing uh, after the thousand years now. <laughs> All right, since Doug put so many of these verses to music. All right. Satan and his brood are liars. Satan and his brood are liars. This is the flip side of the truth uh, emphasis in Proverbs 12. The liars. They're liars from their heart. They're liars from their nature. They're, they're following after the course of this age. This is a theme that's stressed by Jesus, John 8, 44. It's a theme stressed by Paul, 1 Timothy 1, 10 and 1 Timothy 4, 2. And it's a theme stressed by John. 
almost every chapter of 1 John plus Revelation. 1 John 1, 2.4, 2.22, 4.20, 5.10. Again and again and again and again. Satan is the liar. And then obviously Revelation 21, where we are right now, Revelation 21.8, 21.7, Revelation 22.15. Time and time again, John reminds us that this wonderful, beautiful new heavens and new earth, by the way, there's no unbelievers there, ever. No fornicators, no liars, no murderers, no perjurers. And uh, again and again and again we're reminded, Revelation 21.8, we'll have to pick up on this next week, for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. <laughs> Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's for them. The devil's been, uh, the fire's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse uh, 27, that ends chapter 21. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will never be an unbeliever that walks upon the new earth. The first generation, second generation, third generation, to a thousand generations. Not one sin, not one sinner will walk upon the earth. 22.15 Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Notice they still exist. We don't, we don't preach annihilationalism. They're in the lake of fire. They're outside. They're beyond the new heavens and new earth uh, in the sealed off forever in the lake of fire. They still exist. A thousand generations later, they still exist. They will for all eternity. Okay. Well, I just don't have time. We'll, uh, we'll uh, remind ourselves of John 8 and 1 Timothy and 1 John. We'll spend some time with that. And then... Uh, We'll gain some new ground next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for teaching in spite of the distractions, in spite of the confusion, Father, of the, the, the clicker things I thought I had in my slideshow. But Father, you, uh, you remain sovereign. Thank you for being faithful. Continue to bless our studies. Continue to bless uh, this class. I'm glad we have this class. I'm glad we have the, uh, the, uh, the special time here in the middle of the week. Thank you for providing it, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.